Welcome to Meet the New Boss, a riveting podcast series exploring how business leaders make their way in the world and how music has influenced who they have become. Here are your hosts, Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Neva. Okay, welcome to a new, exciting episode of Meet the New Boss. This is your co-host, Jeff Niebuhr, and with me always is... Vince Catanzaro. Vince Catanzaro. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. We're in the dog days of summer now. Looking back on your life, what season do you like best? Spring? Summer? Fall, winter. Yeah, I'm definitely fall. The weather, the clothes, time of year. I don't like sweating. Yeah, I don't either. I don't like sweating if sweat. I'm not intending to sweat. But I don't. I don't like to be cold either. I have an enigma. I so if I'm going to exercise or play football or be out of the beach, I don't mind sweating a little bit. You still playing football these days? Uh, well. Not as much contact sport in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just have fond memory. My kid, my kid's a rising senior, so he and I were just talking the other night. Well, think back. He didn't ask me these questions, but if you imagine we were in a sitcom, he might have said, think back, Dad, to when you were a rising senior. What was your summer prior to your senior year of high school because everything changes right the next year was awesome i remember my senior the summer before my senior let's year hear it. it was about me uh, for a second I, but let's hear your story first yeah i worked at uh lou's luncheonette i uh was a, a grill cook in this little nice. luncheonette and off the highway in new york and so i had cash i got paid in cash and i had nice. a car and what kind of car did you had, have your rising i had a year. plymouth champ Wow. Uh, what year split, was that? It was a 1980 Plymouth Champ split shift. So it was like wow. a 10 speed. And it was uh 10 speed. And and I had girlfriends. I and we had we would you go had to girlfriends the lake. plural. Was, awesome. was that what you said? You had girlfriends? Yeah, I mean there was girls around. Let's say it that way. So the it was great. Yeah, that was a great year. Great summer. Great summer. Had cash, had money, jobs, yes. girls, girl, everything. rock and roll. I remember hearing a sermon about financial security, and the person giving the sermon said, you know, it's not about how much money you make. It's really how much money you make compared to your financial responsibilities. And he talked about, very similar, he worked age 15, 16, he was a stock boy at Piggly Wiggly, and he worked all he could, 30, 40 hours a week, probably only making a couple bucks, three bucks an hour, but he gets paycheck, $150. And he had no real expenses. <laughs> He's like, right, exactly. I've never had that much margin. And he goes, I make gazillions of dollars, but it all goes out. So he's responsible for heat and mortgage and kids and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, there's something magical about having the job. High school, I had a job. I worked at the Chick-fil-A. I was promoted a manager, shift manager. So I had a, I opened the store in the morning, and we were in the mall. So, so what, I had, I had a key what, to the mall. Time? What time did you do like Six thirty, six. Okay. Depends if the truck was there to unload stuff. But yeah, I was a responsible young kid. 
But I had a key to the mall. So I'd go open the mall at 6 o'clock in the morning, help unload the truck, get all the mall walkers in there. What's the matter? You look depressed. I hate working the theater. All the action's on the other side of the mall. Sling I did the breakfast. same thing. I had to open loose at 6 a.m. I had to be there at 4.30 a.m. I'd get there. Oh, well, that's pretty yeah. early. Well, it was early, dude. I had to set like five alarm clocks. I had to wake my whole house up, waking myself up because I couldn't get it. One that's alarm didn't do it. I, I, yeah, I, I'm a one alarm person. I had a roommate that was like a nine alarm person in college. It drove me crazy. I had one of those crazy. wind up ones that went bang. <laughs> so what year was this? Let's, uh, let's date 80. ourselves. This is uh, 85 to 86. Summer of... Yep, that's me too. I graduated summer of 86. So summer of 85. Summer of 85. So I think that leads us to our musical topic tonight. We're going to get to a topic. No guests tonight. So stuck with just Vince and myself. But our musical topic is music of the 80s. And we're going to try to pick our number one album music of the 80s it's very tough wow very tough tough. so i'm gonna go first i'm gonna go Go first i'm gonna cheat and pick two good right cheat right off the bat so a and as discussed i grew up steeped in hip-hop early hip-hop well first wave so you know sugar hill gang grandmaster flash all that's kind of late late 70s 80s but then Really, the sweet spot for me was Def Jam Records. So LL Cool J, Run DMC, Houdini, Beastie Boys, Fat Boys. Um, I saw all those folks in concert. They It was concerts like I imagine the 50s. Like if you watch the Buddy Holly story where they had eight people on the bill and they'd all come on and sing like four songs and that was it. Just the hits. And that, that's kind of the model, I think was in play here because i you could go to a show i saw a show i saw a new edition with like the fat boys and houdini it was just unbelievable and they all just played this quick short set then i saw run dmc a couple times i saw public enemy but the greatest album for me in that period of time of the 80s was the beastie boys licensed to ill it was just a crazy uh just kind of trashy, almost cartoonishy. You know, we make fun of Kiss often on the show for their cartoonish figure, but the Beastie Boys certainly had personas. How about that? Personas, uh, not not unlike some Kiss personas in their first album. And my friends and I just at the right, just hit us at the right time, bought into it, and uh, you know, we were just steeped in that. Eighty-five, eighty-six, eighty-seven. Uh, and then in 87, I moved into college and kind of took a left turn into alternative. At the time, college rock, before it was even called alt, alt rock, but probably college rock. And then steep, steep, steep in REM. And so I'm going to say my second greatest album, tied for first, of the 80s is REM Murmur from 1983. Classic album, cut to cut. It's uh, layered, it's deep, it's lyrics that you can't really understand, but you can get a word or a syllable here and there, and you go, oh, man, that's so deep. It's so deep. <laughs> but I have no idea, what he's, no idea what he's talking about, but, man, is that deep. Bass forward, you know, bass guitarist at heart. Bass forward, lots of melodic bass lines. Very, you know, I also can't stand guitarist in general. So, so... 
very limited guitar, a bunch of appreciates. What do you call that? Appreciates. Where they're picking, lots of picking, very few bar chords. Like, like hammer, like hammer on? No, 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 no. Much more like House of the Rising Sun is what you would know as a appreciate song. Uh, so anyhow, check those out. REM Murmur, 1983, and the Beastie Boys License Deal, which I think was released in 86. Wow, that's, uh, go that's good. Well, 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 give me a single off of the Beastie Boys. So man. the Beastie Boys, I'm going to say it's the new style. It's the greatest, one of the greatest rap songs, hip-hop songs of all time. Not a lot of gimmick. It's not a story. Not a, it's just the three of them spitting out lyrics, spitting out rhymes. And there's a, 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 a bit of a braggadocio about, um, you know, about who they are and how cool they are and how, and it's just awesome. Everybody did you have the Vanilla Ice album? I did not have the Vanilla Ice album. It's, it's to mention Vanilla Ice in the same paragraph as the beastie boys is a grave dishonor <laughs> to the beastie boys all right so albums of the 80s hold on let me so go back to single so sing on a single deep yeah. cut off of murmur i'm gonna give you moral kiosk just that alone you realize it's deep it's deep you may not be able to understand the lyrics or get them vince but trust me when i tell you the rem lyrics are deep <laughs> I, I, I believe you. All right, your turn. Let's go. Let's kick it up a notch. Well, all right, so let's see. Uh, you snuck in two albums. I tried to look. The Wall by Pink Floyd was released in 79. Rats. I had to give it a mention because it's one of the all-time greats, but I'm going to skip that one and say my two albums from the 80s, uh, it's got to be uh, Shout Out the Devil, Molly right. Crew. Shout the Devil. Right? So Molly it's got Shout Out the Devil, Looks to Kill, um, it's got uh, oh man, all sorts of great songs. Did there. you think they were di- uh, directly influenced by Kiss? Oh, uh, you know, I know there was definitely an influence, but they were an LA band, right? They mm-hmm. were Kiss is more of know, a New York scene, right? Yeah. So the uh, but they were awesome. I mean, you know, Mick Mars and 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 Tommy Lee. And, I mean, come on, yeah, Vince Neil. It's great. Great so what's your what's your favorite song off of that album or deep cut people may not may not maybe not don't know oh probably well i mean probably a deep cut would be the song danger danger um i like that song it's a oh, like the whole album is good what okay. year was shadow of the devil that's probably 83 too 83 84 uh, it's, yeah, it's probably 83 um and you know kind of later 80s i have to go to uh Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. GNR, Appetite for Destruction. It probably took to 90 before it really hit. I got turned on to Appetite for Destruction from actually going to um, a KISS tour that I saw multiple times. And during the set change, the song um, Jungle was played Mm, during the set change. Welcome to the Jungle. What year is that? 89, maybe? 87, 88, probably 88, the KISS tour. And I was like, man, that's a a cool song and then mm-hmm. i finally saw the video on mtv mtv in the 80s we should be talking about mtv mm. right king of the 80s and uh, uh billy idol it's great yeah hey so this is the downside right remember i told you the bell curve in the 70s the with the top right so right. 80s 
like you know hair bands that kind of stuff this is when rock and roll starts to slide mm-hmm. you know starts to go down and by the end of the 80s there's just a few good albums coming out slaughter was in the 80s remember slaughter up yep. all night sleep all day Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I like them a lot. I knew them yeah. all. I watched. I hope my parents aren't listening, but I watched about fourteen hours of MTV a day when I was in college. <laughs> so you said, so you saw them all, and so, so I knew them all. all. It, there was a weird, yeah. you know, and MTV was new. It was all kind of new wavy, and then it was just onslaught of of Michael Jackson. You know, he, the, oh, he okay. and then Thriller. and and all that derivative, and then into dance, Paula Abdul. And then, uh, you know, then hair bands. And I, I have a funny story. Take two steps forward, you take two steps back. Yep, there was a, uh, you, you could call in and request a video on MTV. This is how, you know, long ago it was. Did you do that? Oh, yeah, all the time. I was always calling and asked for the Sex Pistols. <laughs> they never played. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember the image. Remember the MTV thing when they had like, oh. the guy in the moon planting right, the MTV sure, yeah, flag right. in the moon? Yeah, that, So anyhow, yeah. so... For a six-month period in maybe 87 or 88, they had to make a new rule that said, if you call in, you have to pick a song that's been released in the last six months or else it doesn't count. And the reason for that was, what song by Motley Crue did they have to make that special rule to kick off the the call-in charts? Take one. The people, a Motley Crue song that was always called, always, always requested. So much so, girls, 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 girls. I think it's the same album. That's a good guess. It's a power ballad, "Home Sweet Home." Oh, home sweet home. Every day, it would be like ten thousand people would call in. I want to hear "Home Sweet Home," and every day I want. Famous country star redid that. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a great Um, song. I bet it's good as a country song too. It's a great video, great song. I, I don't dislike the Motley Crue. Yeah. I'm on my way. All right, did you get two albums in there? What was your deep cut on uh, Appetite? Oh, an Appetite? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if either of those albums have deep cuts because they're kind of really great albums. Rocket Queen? All right. Really Rocket Queen? Yeah. I mean, I had that album, so I don't, I don't know that I know that song. But I, Mr. I, I remember the- Mr. Brownstone? Yep, the first time seeing Welcome to the Jungle on MTV, it was a lot like, we talked about this before, when the Beatles showed up and Brian Wilson felt like he looked silly in his little surfing shorts. I th- it made all the hair bands look silly to me. It's like, here's a real rock and roll band. Everything you're doing, Poison, Warrant, even a little Molly, everything you're doing is like make-believe. And then here's yeah, Slash... By the back end of the 80s, hair bands were dying off. Like, you yep. know, that's what's, and then you hit, and I don't even know the, um, what's the Seattle band I'm thinking of? That's uh, Nirvana. Nirvana. The, I mean, I relate to them as the 90s, but they probably released in the 80s. No, well, no, I think uh, Nevermind was released in the 90s, their big album. I had a theory that Nirvana is the love child of REM and Guns N' Roses. So they okay. have the indiscernible, strange, supposedly deep lyrics, but the raw energy and loud guitar of GNR. I saw GNR last or two years ago, Austin City Limits Music Festival. Was it good? Oh my gosh! Slash was—he looked identical and was awesome. Duff was great. Out, uh, you know, he could still sing, but he looked a little rougher. 
But Duff, you know, uh, he they were so popular, Guns N' Roses, the Simpsons wrote in a character and a brand name named after Duff, the bass player of Guns N' Roses. Do you know what that product is? I'm not, I'm not a big Simpsons guy. Duff Beer. They invented this whole oh, beer line, a beer man, a Duff man. And they called Duff, and they're like, hey, is it cool if we do this? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. He goes, well, how do we figure out the rights? And he's like, it's fine. And now, you know, he's probably kicking himself because I think Duff beer is as popular maybe as GNR is today. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, talking about not understanding the, uh, the words and uh, smell, smells like fear. Smells, smells like, like team weird. spirit. Yeah, Teen Spirit, yes. When um, Weird Al did the song, he did Smells Like Nirvana, and he did it with marbles in his mouth. That's right. Yeah, pretty funny. It is pretty funny. Okay, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back and get into the meat of our topic. So, Vince, people are always coming up to me, and they're saying, Jeff, how do you get a podcast? What's the magic? How do you even get started? And so what I always talk about is the product Anchor. You know, we started this thing and we went in Google, what's the easiest way to get a podcast and like the top 50 results all said Anchor. So we went out and we learned a little bit more about it and we discovered some really awesome parts about it. The first thing is it's free. It's absolutely free. Well, I mean, it gets better than that, you know, because doing the whole process of recording and editing and just the, the creation of the podcast and the engineering, the app literally builds in how do you record it? How do you edit it? You know, you could record right on the, the platform and edit right on the platform and add music on the platform. So it ends up being uh, not only free, but it's how you build the thing. And then the other thing, the next thing really was, how do we distribute it? How do we get it out to the, all, the, all the folks? And so from Anchor, you could do it almost anywhere through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a bunch more. And it'll handle all the distribution, publishing. It's great. Well, you know, let's talk brass tacks. We're talking greenbacks, moolah, money. Yeah, that's where <laughs> that's where it's at. So it literally is like a, like a banking app, right? You know, literally, like all these banking apps that are out there, it's really built into the into the platform. So it walks you through how do you monetize your podcast? Yep. It's everything you need, really, to make a podcast in one place. Well, you know, I would tell all the listeners, go to anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm. It's uh, it's the best place to start podcasting. All right, welcome back. So we're going to talk some business here, uh, leadership, but I had to give one last honorable mention, which would be... uh, Judas Priest screaming for vengeance as an album. What a great oh album! Oh my gosh! All right, and then I I must. That's the, that's the second British invasion. Yeah, Judas Priest is part of. All right, I must give another album. Okay, Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. She opened up a little vein there that had been closed out for some time of the female powerful singer songwriter. A lot to say, going all the way back to Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez. Indigo Girls kind of opened the door for her, but she came screaming through. She's got a unique voice. The album, I could listen to that album tonight. It is back-to-back great songs. You would love it. All right, let's move on to business. We may be better talking about music than business, but we're here to talk about both. Uh, This is a great topic we uh, selected today. Um, 
It's apropos to our time. We've talked about it a little bit on the edges, but uh, the topic today is managing remote employees. We may do a quick series, employees, clients, and bosses. How do you interact with them when they're remote? So I think both you and I have had this experience long before COVID, uh, lots of remote teams. Um, what do you find is different when you have a team that is partially remote uh, compared to a team that is all remote? How do you address that situation? Um, well, well, I've had both of those situations. The partially remote team, I, I had a distributed team from you know people here local in Atlanta, Seattle, China, and UK. And, you know, we would have to schedule meetings, you know, that were like early in the morning, late at night, China, right? Just kind of hit everyone. So that was somewhat unique. But the I had a, a big team uh, that worked for me in India, a couple hundred people matrixed into my organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you this, this quick story. I, when I first started, I was having these you know, back, there was three different teams that had back-to-back-to-back telemeetings. It was before video, you know, before big group video calls. And so we'd have these uh, um, telephonic, you know, group meetings. And, you know, I talked to the team and, and, uh, you know, new direction, things were changing, blah, blah, blah. And then I got assigned in India. The the company would hire these MBAs coming out of these big schools in India and make them kind Mm -hmm. of like these... uh, operational business managers and I had a business manager assigned to me. And so I would say something, you know, like, Hey, you know, tomorrow we're all going to get in a call at, you know, 10 AM. And then he would say, so Vince said tomorrow we're all going to get a call at 10 AM and say exactly what I just said. And then people would start going, Oh, oh, okay. So for like eight weeks, like my first eight weeks of the company, no one understood a word I was saying. So I was just like talking and they were listening and no communication was taking place. (laughs) How did you solve for that? Well, when we had that business operations manager that when I would go, I went, I spent three weeks at a time there with teams. So I had to travel to it. So, but again, that business operations manager was, uh, you know, a big help because, yeah, yeah, he translated my English to the queen's English, I guess, and communicated so I think uh, I'll talk a little bit about my experience. I had teams that were pretty local, and then we merged with a team um, in another state. And then our company went through a growth by acquisition strategy. And so we bought dozens, maybe hundreds of companies over the next 10 years, some small, some large. And so we, one of my roles was to go on the team that would go and try to incorporate the there was a person that worked on incorporating their, you know, Microsoft technologies like email and stuff. And then somebody else looked at all their billing type systems and how would they map into ours? I was kind of one that would go and check out the people, right? Cause we, you know, we bought these people. They're now employees of our company. Um, many of them were awesome. Some of them were less awesome. You know, some needed to maybe move on or move it back into the business, but some were great it people and, we started to fold them, you know, into our teams. And so I, we didn't have a grand strategy to do that. It was really a matter of 
Well, if you can use these people, they're on the payroll for another year, year and a half. So almost like free labor to, you know, to me and my peers. And so I would go out and try to find the ones that were, could help out. And so all, after a year or two of doing this, we realized um, we had a multi-geographic strategy from an IT standpoint. We had maybe, you know, my boss maybe had 180 people that previously were in two locations and they're now in 12 locations, right? And so that changed everything. Two locations, you kind of had two different cult- cultures and you would do lots of and travel. Like you said, I would travel to their location once a month and we would do a lot of in-person stuff there. But then with 12 locations, that just wasn't feasible, right? I could only, you know, I could go to one a month and be, see everybody in a year. And there was a pivotal moment when we were having a team meeting and it was in a, it was in Alpharetta where the, you know, maybe of my team of 30, maybe 12 were in Alpharetta and the rest were in the other 11 locations. And so we were in this room where we had always had team meetings, you know, and, and I'm doing my thing and they're all on this bridge call, this phone call. And Nobody was really interacting. You know how those team meetings go. They're just terrible. It's just me talking, blah, blah, blah. And so I asked some people afterwards, I'm like, how come you guys in the other locations aren't talking? And this one person, I wish I could remember the name because I give him credit, said, you know, hey, Jeff, when you're remote and we're on a conference call, like doing a troubleshooting exercise and everybody's on a conference call, then it's a, it's a level playing field. But when we're on a remote, but you have 12 people in the room, we are not on a level playing field and they dominate the conversation and there's no way for us to really get in a word edgewise. And so the next week and what we did from then on is we're just going to do team meetings at your cube. You know, everybody had a headset, everybody had a cube. You're just going to do it at your cube and we're not going to, just because I happen to be in Alpharetta, we're not going to favor Alpharetta we're going to make it more of an even, even playing field. So that was one, you know, one lesson learned was if you have uh, a chunk of people in one location, that doesn't mean those people should be in a room. Um, maybe that works, but I would just caution you to think about what is the experience like for those not in the room. That's a good, that's a really good point. I like that a lot. And I had a similar situation happen during COVID where we started doing uh, video calls, right? So we're starting mm-hmm. to do all these team video calls. Um, like some of us were still going into the office. And one of the guys that worked with me, you know, when we were together, we would kind of, you know, meet the group of us that were together. And then the people who were remote would be in a video call. And one of the guys that was with us in the together room was like, I feel like when we're doing these calls that I lose a voice because I'm not at my own computer. Ah, uh, all of a sudden it's like the, the, ta- the yeah. tables have turned. Right, right. So he's like, I'd prefer just to sit at my desk and do the call. Are you cool with that? I said, yeah, of course. And so then even yeah. though we were together, you know, a group of us were together, everyone got in their call at their desk, you know, with the headsets on. And, and with the remote team. So everyone was kind of at an equal seat. So completely yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And I had someone verbalize a very similar situation just last cool. year. But the opposite, that's great. I have one other tip, one other, and this is kind of old school now, but this is the technology was reasonably new when we were trying to do all this was instant messaging. I think, 
I don't know if we started Skype or Link, some early version of instant messaging. I remember there was some senior leadership who was were like, we shouldn't be on instant messaging. That's just like gossip talk. And man, I was vehemently against that. I'm like, that is the exact thing that we need for remote um, distance employees. And and if they gossip a little bit, that's fine. But we, for me, instant messaging, now, now, you know, everybody has instant messaging in Slack and Teams or whatever. Um, but it's, it is the glue. I think it's a little bit of the glue that holds teams together. And I think it's even maybe superior to an in-person experience in that I can have ongoing conversations with seven, eight, 10 people at a time on my screen. Anytime you'll come to my office, I'll have 10 or so slacks up and, you know, I can talk to somebody for a little bit. They can go off. They may be in a meeting and they may get back to me 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later. So I have these ongoing conversations that's because of the, the way technology is in the, in the medium, it's actually more, this is my opinion, it's actually can be more effective and more efficient than if we, I had to go by each person's cube. One, I'd have to stop them from doing what they're doing and chit chat, um, whether it's informal or whether it's work-related or not work-related, but uh, the Slack or instant messaging I found to be very helpful to have those non-formal type conversations. And that's how I often will interact with not just people in alternate locations, but that's kind of my go-to way to interact. Even if someone's sitting in the office next to me or a couple doors down, um, it's just, again, it's a little bit of a level playing field that, you know, hey, we're going to interact on Slack just like we would have 20, 30 years ago if we were all in one, you know, set of cubicles. If that, that's a technology that really exploded. And I think it was like 2006 when people started texting me for the first time. Mm. I didn't even know how they did it, right? All of a sudden, a message would pop up on my phone. And I'm like, <laughs> what is up with that? How'd they do that? It's right? And after a couple of months, I finally figured out, oh, okay, this is how this works, yeah. right? Text is and, a form of uh, instant message. Yeah. And then, uh, and, you know, and, and then, yeah, instant messaging has exploded. I've never, from a business perspective, embraced the Slack or I, I just never had that, you know, text. Mm. I, I still text a lot to people. I'm not part of big groups. I have one that I'm, you know, kind of part of right now that I'm, you know, kind of observing before I dive into communicating with the people to kind of learn how they, culturally handle it. So I think uh, in summary, I'd say over communication and uh, ensuring that people on a a level playing field, I think those are the two advices I'd give to somebody who's in a leadership position that's moving from a hundred percent within your building to more remote, which I think this year, most everybody had to deal with that. Right. So those are my tips. I hope, um, hope folks. So let's move on. Maybe a little culture corner. We got one culture corner here. We have a series here too. How to know you're a bad boss. And I don't remember even what we said last week, but this week it's if you equate holding somebody accountable to firing them or using the threat of firing them, if you think that's what holding them accountable is. And in fact, if you remember way back the five uh, dysfunctions of a team, 
that story included a leader, a CEO, I think, in this kind of novella. And he, he, he made this exact statement. He said, well, I just fired our chief marketing officer. That's holding them accountable, isn't it? And so the protagonist, the consultant said, well, that's not really holding them accountable. And she went on, the consultant went on to talk about how firing employees often is a reflection of poor leadership, right? And so she pressed him a little bit about, well, what guidance did you give this person before you fired them? Did they ever come to you with problems? And did you, how did you help them solve their priority problems? Did this person have enough resources to get their job done? And what uh, the eventual resolution of that little um, subplot was, indeed, the CEO probably didn't have enough skin in the game, didn't articulate expectations, didn't give this person the tools to do their job. And of, of course, this person was failing. I mean, it wasn't like it was a bad fire. They were failing. They had been warned. And then they failed again. And the leader terminated them. Uh, and so it was a righteous action at some level. Uh, but at a deeper level, it really was more of a reflection of poor leadership than poor execution by this individual. And so whenever I come in contact with cultures or organizations or bosses or in myself, I feel myself, I'm just going to fire that, we get rid of that bad seed, they're a bad seed, you know, I try to think of this story and I try to think about what is the leadership, what is the culture, what is the support system and how can we improve the situation? Because ultimately, you know, you know this better than I do, spinning the wheel and getting the next person, that's a crapshoot. <laughs> next person could be worse than the person you got. I mean, you hire this person or they got into this position. They must have some decent qualities. Maybe the job's not right for them. Maybe there's a different job or maybe the job needs to change a little bit. All those things are way harder to do than just firing them and getting the next person, but ultimately more effective. And I think ultimately better for you as the leader and better for your organization. If you can find places for people to be, um, and I don't, I'm not suggesting we take firing off the table. I think that's an important eventual last step, but even when that occurs, I, I would hope that leaders would um, have a sense that, man, I failed this person at some level. Either I failed when I hired them, I failed when I created the job, or I failed when I was coaching them. And certainly this person could have done better because there, there are great, you know, exceptional people and there's people that are less exceptional. Um, but the leader, I think, has a great responsibility uh, to make everybody on the team successful. And, um, and if that person's not successful, then I think partially, maybe not all, but partially that's reflective of poor leadership. And our podcast, all about trying to make our bosses different than the last boss. That's my culture corner. What's your experience? Have you, I know you have had to terminate people and um, what's your reflection? Does that ring true or do you have a different angle there? Or what's no, your no, thoughts? no, it definitely rings true. So I am, um, you know, for me, like letting people go, it typically comes to 
they hate what they're doing and they hate being there and having them around is a really negative draw. And after multiple conversations, it's like, Hey, listen, I'm going to be the favorite, right? Mm -hmm. You gotta go. Right. Uh, I was once made to, by my boss, fire someone who was trying and I was very uncomfortable with it because Mm. they were trying to get better and they were putting Mm -hmm. effort in to get better. And it wasn't an attitude thing. It was, um, Hey, I need more help. I need more coaching. I need more experience. And, and that's a leadership, right? Responsibility. Yeah. And, uh, and my boss is like, you gotta let him go. And they, you know, they pushed me on it for several months and eventually I did, but I never, that never sat well with me. But I think the threat of a job, I, you know, I, I don't know. I've always instinctively known that that's not a good idea. You would think I would have instinctively known that with my children, not to threaten, you know, uh, the, mm-hmm. their cell phone or TV or something like that. Cause that's not a good idea either. So, uh, although I did it a bunch of my children learned All the slow way, right. <laughs> With my kids, I never, I never brought that in, into the office. I eventually learned that, you know, by the time your kids are in high school, you can no longer tell them what to do. You got to coach them through what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, you know, but I think by kid five, I kind of had that figured out. So, uh, yep. yeah, good. We'll have to interview Kid Five one time and see. Yeah, yeah, see what she says. <laughs> He's a terrible. I also guy. think you know, co- companies and cultures and leaders that are quick to fire. I think they probably don't realize the impact that has in the rest of the organization. There's a level of fear that that starts to be permeate throughout the org of. Are they just going to fire me if I screw up? And so then all of a sudden there's like a fear of risk taking. And, you know, business requires some amount of risk taste, you know, initiative and making decisions and moving forward and not always trying to CYA or trying to dump it on somebody else. You know, there's that's those are all negative aspects of culture. And I think that that can come to light. Um, I do want to say, you know, there's an opposite problem too which is if you have terrible employees and you don't hold them accountable and you don't take action you don't step up your game as a leader to coach them or you know help them find a way that's better or you know what i think the best opportunity sometime and you alluded to it is maybe you have to work them out of the out of the company you make it clear hey look you're not you know you're not performing at the right level Here's where you need to be at. Most of the time, those those people will leave. But if you don't, if you're a leader that doesn't take care of problem employees, I think that's equally, maybe even more harmful to the team. So, man, yeah. being a leader is tough. You have to hold people accountable. But my advice is don't use firing as an early response. It should be a last response, and it should have some solemnness associated with you know, your failure as a leader. And so we should, we should use that as a last resort. Um, and very rarely in my, in my opinion, most of the time, great managers work those people out of the org. If they're slackers and they're working for a great manager, it's pretty clear early on that this great leader is not going to put up with that slacking. And I do, and they'll find somewhere else to work. They'll just leave. They'll go, you know, whatever. Yeah, that comes down to performance management. We've talked about that in the past, but, I mean, you've got to be managing performance with your team, right? And and striving to constantly get better, right? It's a yep. constant. It's not like you're good. Oh, we're good. No, no, you got, it's always better. better. Right? Yeah, it's always better, right? So it's always uh, performance management. 
All right, I that did was share. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I did share with uh, an executive huddle with executives from all over the world. We got in the subject of of doing uh, reviews, and just like everyone, they hate it. They hate, hate the process. It. And I shared I shared your antidote, uh, the, the story about getting right, ready to go right, out right. to play golf, and the guy did it in like fifteen minutes. He's 15 like, "Yeah, I just said that you're doing a great job. Uh, next year, do better. You're doing, and doing a hell of a job. Yeah. Do better next year. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't make me point it out. You know, yeah. you know what you so could they, improve on. They thought that was fantastic. I just <laughs> solved the issue when I shared that story. If if you're doing that, then you're not you're you're like the old boss. You need to be better. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to exit here a little bit music. We didn't mention the top 4 of the 80s all singles uh artist Prince, Madonna, Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen. I bet the four of them sold more albums than like anybody else in the 80s combined. Oh my gosh. And they were just I mean, everywhere and I love we should do a whole we do a whole show on each one of those artists. They're unbelievable I'll careers. Them. I'll stock rank them for you right now. Prince Michael Jackson, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen. That's what you're ranking? That's, that's my stack rank on those four. Oh, you put Bruce last. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm not going to rank because I haven't thought about it long enough. I like them all. They all, they're, they're all, they're all right. have unbelievable songs. Unbelievable. Madonna. Arts. Madonna's first album was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Seems great. All right. Jeff, you know what? You just may be my lucky star. Oh my gosh, that's weird. That makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> all right, that's all we have time for today. That was another episode of Meet the New Boss. Um, Jeff Niebuhr. And I'm Vince Catanzaro. Thanks so much, Jeff. Everyone have all right, a great we'll day. We'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to Meet the New Boss with Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Available on Apple Podcasts and other streaming platforms. Please like and subscribe. Meet the New Bus is sponsored by Rene Vincent Executive Placement LLC. Contact Jeff at jeff.nieber at iCloud.com or find him on LinkedIn at Jeff Nieber. Contact Vince at Vincent at renevincent.win or find him on LinkedIn at Vincent Catanzaro. Bumper music provided by The Who and Budafi. Additional engineering provided by Just In Time Recordings. All material 100% controlled by Vincent Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Unauthorized reproduction is prohibited by law. Meet the new bus.